before I jump into the sermon, I just wanted to share a few remarks with you in light of all that's happened this week in our nation. Up front, I just want to say I'm still processing all that's that's going on. So what I share is unfinished thoughts. <laughs> thoughts are still for being formulated. But I hope there's truth and wisdom, and I hope that they'll provoke your own hearts and minds uh, uh, to discern with the Lord. Four, four things. The first is this. We need to lament. Lament is a good thing in moments like this, and we should pause and give space to grieve. Now, don't get me wrong. Lament is not a sort of passive quietism, but rather an outspoken honesty. It's, it's a way of bringing our pain and our disorientation and our confusion and our anger and our questions to God and, and wrestling with God over what's going on. And we need to lament because if we don't lament and bring all these things to God, then we're going to bring them to each other in a whole bunch of hurtful and harmful ways. Uh, we need to lament and we need to give each other the space and the grace to do so, recognizing that grief manifests itself in different ways for different people. So that's the first thing is we need to lament and we should not skip over that. The second is that we need to check our own hearts before judging others. Why do you see the speck in your brother's or sister's eye, says Jesus, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or again, Jesus says elsewhere, out of the heart, out of the human heart comes evil thoughts and theft and murder and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. As if Jesus says to us, like, no human heart is perfectly clean. And I think if we don't acknowledge that about ourselves up front, then our postures toward others in this season is going to smack of self-righteousness, not the humility and grace of the gospel. And so not only do we need to lament, but we need to check our own hearts before judging others. And third, we need to seek and speak the truth. I've, I've been astonished in this season by how much our ability to know the truth has been called into a question from every corner, as if everything is just unchecked agenda and opinion. And I think if we've learned anything this week, it's that truth really does matter. <laughs> unchecked lies and disinformation end up hurting people. They erode our common life and undercut our civic trust, and they even lead sometimes to violence and death. And so truth needs to be told, and falsehood needs to be put away. But as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, truth needs to be spoken in love and itself as an act of love. Like the ultimate goal of speaking truth to one another is not so to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. It's not to condemn people. It's not to marginalize people. Speaking the truth, the ultimate goal of it is to instruct sometimes rebuke, but just instruct and invite others into a common share of the common good, common social and intellectual and spiritual good. And so I think James is wise to tell us that we need to discipline our tongues and our speech. He says in chapter three of his letter, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And James says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. So not only do we need to lament and check our own hearts before judging others, but we need to speak the truth and seek it. And finally, we need to forgive. And we need to pursue reconciliation. 
in the Bible, especially 2 Corinthians, God gives his people not a ministry of condemnation, but a ministry and a message of reconciliation. Why? Because in Christ, says Paul, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, the apostles and now the church, the message of reconciliation. And in a season of so much confusion and chaos, this is the good news that we offer to the world that it would not otherwise have or not otherwise hear in the midst of everything that's going on. I mean, there just is no redemptive way forward for us as individuals or as a church or as a nation, except through the message and the ministry of reconciliation. So my brothers and sisters, <laughs> I like you in processing what's going on. And I leave you with these brief kind of unfinished reflections and hope that they'll do just a little bit to stir your own heart and mind as you seek to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God in this season. And now we can turn to the more formal bit of the sermon. A sermon at its best should be a sustained reflection and reiteration of God's living voice as it comes to us in Holy Scripture. And one of the things I love about following the lectionary at this time of year, I don't love everything about following the lectionary, if I'm honest, but one of the things I love is that we don't get to choose the parts of scripture that we want to hear. Rather, scripture comes to us and tells us what we need to hear at any given moment. And this week, I think it's a rather timely word. In our gospel reading from Mark chapter 1, we encounter Jesus at his baptism. He's being anointed by the Holy Spirit and affirmed by the Heavenly Father for public ministry. And as he comes out of the waters of the Jordan the River, the, the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And resounding from those torn heavens is this heavenly voice that declares Jesus of Nazareth to be the Son of God of Psalm 2 and the suffering servant of Isaiah 42. You are my beloved son, comes from Psalm 2. With you I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah 42. And so we're going to listen to the father's perspective of his son and what that may speak to us in this season. We're going to take each phrase in turn. You are my beloved son, says the father. Here Jesus speaks with the words of the psalmist. And in Psalm 2, these intimate words come as God's response to the chaos of the nations. In the opening verses of the psalm, David describes um, angry crowds gathering and people plotting to seize power and leaders and rulers taking counsel together to figure out how they can maintain their power and safeguard their autonomy. And in the midst of all this confusion and maneuvering and plotting, the psalm tells us that God sits enthroned upon heaven, and he is in no way worried or threatened or anxious by the raging of the nations. In fact, the psalmist tells us in verse 4 that God laughs at those who attempt to usurp his rule. And then God speaks from heaven in the psalm, and he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
what we get in the psalm is this royal coronation scene in, in response to the raging of the nations and the plots of the kingdoms of the earth. God sets his own heavenly king on his hill. And he says in verse seven, you, you are the king who is my beloved son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, he says to his king, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so when we come to Jesus' baptism, when we hear, you are my beloved son, we hear echoes and fulfillment of this royal coronation scene, where God's definitive response to the political turmoil and spiritual rebellion of the nations is this one. This Jesus that comes from Nazareth and is baptized by John the Baptist and is anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is God's answer to the rage of the world. And it shows us that the Father's heart and his mind and his purposes for the world remain profoundly Christ-centered, no matter what else is happening. God is filled with affection for his Son, and he wants us to be a people who are filled with affection for his Son. Salvation is found in no other name, we are told. Redemption comes to the world in no other name, we are told. The power to heal all of our hurt comes in no other name, we are told. The power to restore where there is loss or to convict where there is error or to forgive where there is guilt and shame comes in no other name. Jesus is God's answer. I'm reminded of Jesus' own words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He tells that little parable of a person who hears his words and does not do them as like a person who builds their house on sand. A storm comes and wind howls and rain falls and the house comes crashing down. And one of the questions I've been asking myself in the midst of the disorientation and the upheaval that we are experiencing in this season is, Lord, where have I built my house on sand? instead of on you, the living Christ. Lord, where have we as a church built our house on sand instead of you as the living Christ? And Lord, where have we as a nation built our house on sand instead of you, the living Christ? Jesus, in his baptism, is God putting his king on the throne and saying he is the answer to what is going on. You are my beloved son. And in those words, God the Father invites us back to the simple anchoring and hope and trust and grounding in who Jesus is. And then the Father says, with you, Jesus, I am well pleased. And here the Father, instead of using the words of the psalmist, echoes the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42. And in this marvelous prophetic passage, uh, Isaiah, or God through Isaiah, is describing his chosen suffering servant in whom God delights. And once again, the atone of affection ushers into a royal coronation scene. The servant is anointed by God in verse 1. I have put my spirit upon him, says God, for a very particular purpose. 
And, and God states that purpose three times in the first four verses. Verse one, he will bring forth justice among the nations. Verse three, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse four, he will establish justice in the earth. And so this prophetic word from Isaiah 42 rings with this confidence. It's like, this is going to happen. It's as good and it's as sure as done. And it's that same confidence that rings in God's voice as he speaks these words over his son at his baptism. God sees at the moment of baptism all that the son is about to accomplish. All the people he's going to deliver from the power of Satan. All the people that he's going to overwhelm with the power of forgiveness. All the people that he is going to um, include through the power of hospitality. And then all the people he's going to redeem through his life-giving suffering and triumphal resurrection. That confidence rings from the father's voice as he speaks these words over his son. And what we learn here is that at the heart of Jesus' mission and God's intention for his son is the ministry of justice. Now, justice is a word that too often rings hollow in our day, <laughs> sometimes from overuse. Sometimes it's tainted by idealistic utopianism. <laughs> and sometimes it's tainted by oppressive moralism. But here, it's God's word to us. Here it's God's prerogative. Here it's God's mission. Here it's God's gracious resolve to establish justice in the earth. And according to Isaiah 42, Jesus is anointed for this purpose. He's given as a light to the nations to open blind eyes and to set captives free and to dispel the darkness, to free people from the darkness. Isaiah 42 is saying to us, if we want to be a Christ-focused and Bible-believing people, then like a concern for justice will naturally become a part of our spiritual walk. Because Jesus wants to restore the whole created order to its creator. And so at the baptism of our Lord, we are invited to discern in the Father's loving affection for his Son, a simultaneous and a gracious affection for the healing of his hurting creation. I want to conclude with a couple questions. By what means does Jesus establish justice in the earth? By what means? I think we get a hint in verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 42. It says, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. I think the, the imagery is meant to communicate, in other words, that Jesus does not choose to establish justice through the way of violence, but through the strength of gentleness. This is reiterated throughout the Gospels. This is reiterated throughout Paul's writings. And that's why the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, we are told. It's an image of innocence and gentleness. In recent days, I think too often Christians have been tempted to conflate religion and politics, taking their definition of power from the latter. But here we see that in the kingdom of God, violence is not the way to justice. God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression. And God's answer to the arrogance of the world is not more arrogance. 
It's this humility and this gentleness and the simplicity of the cross where he humbly takes all of the evil of the world onto himself and returns grace. It's the power and the strength of the cross. So by what means does Jesus establish justice in the earth? It's by the strength of gentleness and the strength of suffering. And the second question is from whence or from where does this cross-shaped power and love and gentleness come from? And I think we get a hint in verse 8 of Isaiah 42. It says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, and my praise, nor my praise to carved idols. You see, after God speaks to his suffering servant and says, this is your mission, this is why I'm giving you to the nations, he then proclaims his name and his glory. God's name speaks of his personal and his unchanging and his inescapable reality. And God's glory speaks of his his essential beauty, which is his alone. And what we're told is that Jesus pursues justice in his earthly ministry because God has attached the glory of his name to the mission that he has given Jesus. Note God's name is not attached to any political agenda or nation state, but it is attached to the life and the mission and the ministry of his son, God's holy name. And there simply is no other greater reality in the world. This is the most real of all realities. What amazes me throughout the Gospels is that when we come face to face with Jesus, we come face to face with a man who sees all the pain and the brokenness and the deceit and the oppression and the darkness of the world. And yet we come face to face with a man who never loses heart. He does not become disenchanted or cynical or grow weary or get discouraged. Our passage says in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And I think part of the reason is because Jesus knows who he is and he knows God's name. He knows God's glory. He knows that the resources of his life, as was revealed in his baptism, And the energy of his mission emerged from the boundless ocean of God's own life. He knows that the immeasurable riches of the Father's love and the Spirit's presence are upon him. He knows that every human thought, word and deed of his will be filled with this triune love. And so here lies the ultimate security and stability and hope that anchors us in such a season of unpredictable tumult. We are rooted and grounded in Christ. We are Christians. And Christ is rooted and grounded in the depths of the Holy Trinity, the love of the Father and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news that anchors us. This is the hope that we cling to. This is the one in whom we put our trust. And this is the one that fills us with love for a hurting world. Do you not know? Have you not heard, says Isaiah? Has it not been told from you to you from the beginning, the Lord is the everlasting God, 
He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and he strengthens those who have no might. Brothers and sisters, may the anointing of the Lord be upon you this week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.